The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. A large percentage of our life is spent doing work. Whether that be be in our workplaces or the work we do as, as parents for our families or the work that we do in our communities or in our churches as volunteers, a large portion of our life involves some kind of work. Today we're in the second week of our series, Life at Work, and what we're going after in this series is trying to unpack and dive into the significance of work in our life as Christians. Because because work is such a huge percentage of our life, it's also valuable to understand how God created work and the place that God put work in our life and what he created it for. See, what's interesting about work, Barna Research says that about one, only about one-third of Christians actually believe they are called to do the work they do. Which means a large portion of Christians actually don't believe their work has the meaning or significance that God actually has designed that work to be. And so in this series, we want to talk about that work, that work that you do every day. In an article I recently read in, in The Atlantic, there was an interview with a researcher by the name of Allison Plue. Now, Allison is a sociologist, and her work was spent studying American culture, particularly American work, the workplace, public policy, work ethic. And, and interestingly enough, as she did her research, now she's not a Christian researcher or, or trying to come to any Christian conclusions, but in her research, what she discovered in the workplace, within our culture specifically, is that there is a close tie between a person's identity and the work they do. See, what she discovered is that there's been a lot of good research showing that Americans use the notion of hard work to separate themselves from others. And so in her conversations, in her observations, what she'd find are, are that wealthy people would, make, would distinguish themselves from the middle class based on their work and the way they work and what they do. The middle class would do the same when it came to the lower class. They would, they would evaluate their work and make a defining decision about themselves based on how their work compared to the lower class. Men would often do the same thing and compare themselves to women. That they would evaluate themselves based upon their work and how their work compared to other people's work. She went on to say that the work ethic is a really powerful way in which people define themselves as honorable in our society. And so this became significant to understanding, uh, to, to her research, because what she found was that identity and work are so closely tied that a person's worth ethic often becomes the way they define themselves as a human being. It becomes the very way they see themselves. And because of this, she, she discovered that, that what would happen, she, was ha- she would talk to people who, who maybe had a change in their job or a job loss. And, and what would happen in that job loss is that job loss would be th- a threat to a person's identity. Maybe some of you have experienced that, that you lost a job or, or had a pay cut in a job. And what that meant for you, it was not just a financial burden, was it? Maybe some of you experienced that as a threat to who you were as a person. Because if you don't do the work you do, then who are you? As a man, as a woman, if you can't do that job, for some of you that, is, that threatens the very person that you believe you are. This can be the same reason that maybe some of you are, are nearing the stage of life where you think about retirement. 
For, for many people, that can be a very scary and a very difficult thing. Why? Because for many people, retirement is actually a threat to a person's identity. Because what happens is you begin to think about what will life look like when I no longer do what I always did. And if that work defines you, what you are wrestling with is that the potential of you will no longer do or no longer be who you once were. That, that is a challenging phase to then enter into if your work defined you. This is the same reason why for parents, becoming an empty nester can be so challenging. Because as parents, our work raising our children is, is defining for so many of us. And so what will happen is after 20-some years of having, having kids in the home, is the kids will leave, and now you'll have to wrestle with the quick question of now that my kids don't need me the way they once did, who am I? Or, or think about the, the other end of the life stage, the, 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 our, our teenagers as, as they go to school. Right? Think, think about the, the junior and senior years of high school or freshman year of college, the immense amount of pressure that is put on a teenager to figure out what they want to do with their life or to pick the right degree, to pick the right school. Why is there that pressure? The reason that pressure exists in our culture because, because our culture wants those teenagers to believe that they are making an identity-defining decision. Now, it's an important decision, but it's not that important. Because the way that God has created work is important, but it does not determine who you are. But woven into the way we understand work within our culture is that work is who you are. But that is not the way that God created work to work. If you could open your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 3, we're going to be in verses 14 through 19. If you're using the Bibles in front of you, it's on page number 5. Now last week, Pastor Joe took us to the book of Genesis also. He took us to Genesis chapter 2, and he reminded us that work is actually a good thing. That in the beginning, when God created, when God created the heavens and the earth, he also created work. Which despite popular belief, that, that means that work is actually a good thing. That work is not here because of sin. That work is here because God wanted it here. And so Adam and Eve were given work in the very beginning. They're given work to care for and manage God's creation. They're given work to care for one another, to name the animals. This work is an important part of the way God created the world. But in Genesis chapter 3, something happens that shifts and that, that, that something is sin enters into the story of God. And sin has implications not just on our relationship with God, but on all of God's good creation, which includes work. And so in Genesis chapter 3, Eve eats from the fruit of the tree that God forbid. And then, and then Eve gives the fruit to Adam. Adam also eats from the fruit of the tree. Both of them realize they're naked and ashamed. And so they go and they hide from God. And so God comes looking for them in the garden, asking, where are you? But they're hiding because they're ashamed. And then God has a, has a number of different conversations when he talks to them about the implications of their sin. And so he speaks directly to the serpent who tempted Eve. He speaks to Eve and he speaks to Adam. And so I want to begin in verse 14 when God is speaking to the serpent. He says, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between her, your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. And you will strike his heel. 
To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Which, side note, don't ever suggest, don't ever recite that verse when your wife's going into labor, just speaking from experience. Um, you're, don't worry, I told her that an epidural then was proof of God's redemption of all of creation, so we we're good. So, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. And then he says, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. See, in Genesis chapter 2, man is, is master over God's creation. But in Genesis chapter 3, because of the curse of sin... Creation now masters over humanity. In Genesis chapter 2, work is a joy-filled good thing. But in Genesis 3, work is now painful and difficult. See, because because of sin, there are now thorns and thistles. Work requires the sweat of the brow. And this work continues to be this way until you return to the ground. And so this is the way that work now is because of sin. And we need to eat, right? God, God understands this when he speaks to Adam. He says, you need to eat. But in order to get that food, it is now going to be far more difficult than it once was. Because the thorns and the thistles are going to get in the way of you getting the fruit. At times, you will work really hard. You will be sweating and dripping, and it will feel like it's all fruitless. Right? The thorns and the thistles enter into the story of God. See, when we talk about sin, it's easy for us as Christians, if we've grown up in the church, to understand that sin has implications on our relationship with God. But sin not only has implications for our relationship with God, it has implications on all of God's good creation. And if work is a part of that, that means sin affects our work. See, work is painful. Whether that be physically or emotionally, it's painful because of sin. God never intended for the thorns and thistles to get in the way of producing fruit. But because of sin, this is now what happens. Recently, I was cutting my grass in our backyard, and um, as, as I was going along the back fence, I discovered we had those, those little burr things. You know what I'm talking about? As I'm walking along the fence, like they, 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 they just reached out just in the right position, and then got, my leg is covered in burrs. Um, now, now, this is incredibly frustrating, because what happens with those little burrs, if, you, if you've ever experienced them, you know, you know how it is. Like, they make something that should be no problem, just wiping them off your leg, that does not happen. You can't just move on from a burr situation. And so as I'm cutting the grass, it's just going to be a simple pass, and then I'll be all done, but, but, the, but the burrs are now up and down my leg. So an extra 20 minutes is now spent ripping out arm and leg hair in order to solve the burr situation. Right Now, this is something that should be no problem. But, but now it just gets in the way of doing the work. This is what thorns and thistles do. They get in the way of the work we want to do. Right? They make something that should be easy far more complicated. I, I don't know about your work, but I'm just guessing that some of you have had experiences where you went to work and experienced some thorns and thistles. Maybe it's a person, maybe it's a conversation, a boss, a, a co-worker, and you went to work and you expected the day to be an easy day. But then something got in the way and made it far more complicated. 
where you expected, the, you expected it to be the, the conversation to be no big deal, and, and you found it to be far more painful than you anticipated. Right? Because this is the way that work goes. This has all become a part of the way we do our work. That, that work has become far more difficult than the way that God intended for it to work. Now, what many of us will try to do in response to that is as we think, all right, well, maybe if I can control my work, or maybe if I get better at my work, or maybe if I change my work, maybe if I climb the ladder, maybe if I, maybe if I become my own boss, maybe if I become the best at it, and maybe I can master my work, and then I can eliminate these things. Then maybe I can eliminate the thorns, the thistles, the sweat, the pain. Now, anybody who's tried to do this knows that that doesn't work. Those things don't ever go away. And what will often happen because of sin is we will find, as we try to master our work, because sin entered in Genesis chapter 3, our work continues to master us. See, work becomes the master that defines our identity. And so what we try to do is we try to use our work to get, get from our work what we feel like we need. But when we are relying on our work to give us what we need, who's really in control? Us or our work? See, work has become what defines so many of us. And so this is why researchers see this such a strong tie. Or this is why a change in a job can be a threat to your identity. Because for so many of us, we are mastered by the work that we do. And so we try to find these little solutions to undo Genesis chapter 3. If you could turn a few pages over to Genesis chapter 11, I want to read um, a couple verses from the story of the Tower of Babel. Now as we read this story, I want to think about this story specifically and how it applies to our workplaces. Because what happens in Genesis chapter 11 is you have this group of workers who are, who are about to, to proceed in doing a building project. And so they're an organized group of people who are working hard, who want to do something incredible. In verse 3 it says, They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, we're not going to read the whole story, but so, so spoiler, the tower doesn't get built. Their, their language gets confused, and they do end up actually scattered over the whole earth. Now, what's interesting, though, in this passage, when we think about how it applies to the work, there's a number of things that, that are actually, we would actually consider them even significant in our culture when we think about what these words actually mean. See, these workers, it says they used bricks instead of stone. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to build anything with stone, but, but building with stones can be, it can be hard to make a tower out of stones because stones come from in different shapes and sizes. And so um, because of the shapes and sizes, some are flat, some are round. It's not an easy project. But this group of workers, they discover if they create this, this shape, right? They, if they use rectangle stones, also known as bricks, if they use those, that they can build something that was not previously possible. See, this group of workers is a very powerful, well-organized group of individuals using innovation, a technological advancement in their culture to do something the world has never seen before. And so they were going about building this tower. And so this well-organized group of people say, we're going to build this tower and use our expertise. Why? So that we could make a name for ourselves. See, these 
These people are masters of their work. They are the best at their work. They're doing something that people couldn't dream of. A city and a tower that reaches to the heavens. And they master their work. Why? Because they want their work to give them a name. That when people look around, they see their work. They're impressed with what they have done. And that will define them. When it comes to your work, you have two choices. You can use your work to try to give you what work was never meant to give you. Or you can rely on work to give you what it was meant and nothing more. You can use your work to try to give you what work was never meant to give you. Or this is what the people in the Tower of Babel do. They're relying on their work to determine who they are. They're relying on their work, their ingenuity, their organization, their world domination, for that all to determine who they are. Now, maybe you're not doing your work because you want the fame or the renown like like they are, but I'm willing to bet that many of you are doing your work and you see that in doing your work, that determines who you are. Because if you didn't do that work, many of you wouldn't be able to answer that question. Who are you? Or we can rely on our work to give us what it was meant and nothing more. We can understand that work is a good thing, but it was not a defining thing. See, our work is a good thing. Your work is important. But it's important because of what God created it for. Work is the way that God wants to care for and serve the world. Your work doesn't determine your worth. God's work does. Jesus' resume determines your standing before God, not yours. See, when you look at your work, whether that be in your homes or in your communities, your careers, you can use your work to make a name for yourself. Or... You can know the name that's been given to you and go into the work that God has assigned to you. In John chapter 15, Jesus says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. So because of sin, if sin causes our work to master us, and so for so many of us, if if work becomes the master that identifies us, what happens by the power of Jesus? Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, he actually sets us free from that master. From whatever defines you, from whatever enslaves you, Jesus sets you free from that. And and then Jesus becomes the new Lord and master. But what Jesus says is unlike work, I don't just don't make you my slave. But but in John he says, no, you're my friend. That's who you are. You are a friend of God. Jesus gives us an identity that's not determined by our, bl- our own blood, sweat, and tears. It's determined by Jesus's. See, we are saved by works. It's just not our works that save us. It's Jesus' work, his obedience, his efforts, his death, his resurrection, all of that on your behalf. And because of that, that's why what defines you is the fact that you are a friend of God. And then Jesus continues in John 15 to also say, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you 
so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. Now, now this is important. When we understand that we are a friend of God, Jesus wants to say, you are a friend not not because you chose to become my friend, not because you applied for the position, not because you impressed me with with all your with all all your all your impressive abilities and talents. No, you became a friend because I chose you to be my friend. But you are a friend of God. You are who you are because God chose you. And he says, and now, as one who's been chosen, now I've appointed you. See, our work that we have is not what defines us. It's what we've been appointed to. What defines you is the fact that you are a child of God. You are a friend of God. And so now, as you go to your divine appointments, you can carry with you who you are because of Jesus' work. And so he says, now go to your work, do your work that I've appointed to you so that you might bear fruit. Now it's important to remember, now now Genesis 3 is still in play here. And so as you bear fruit, as you try to produce that fruit, that fruit doesn't come easy. So the thorns and thistles are in there. They're cutting you, they're scraping you, they're frustrating you. All while you try to do the work that you've been appointed to do. But what what we can rest knowing is that work that God has appointed us to do is not what defines us. And so it's not the sweat of our brow that determines who we are, but it's the sweat of Jesus that determines who you are. And so you do your work for what it's worth. Knowing that God has given you work to love the people around you because you produce fruit, not so that God might might choose you, but because he's chosen you. And you produce fruit when? When you love the people that God has placed in your life. Now, it's important to note, this doesn't mean now work is all of a sudden better. Right? You, you don't just become a Christian and now everything gets good. Right? Work is still difficult. There'll still be bad ba- days. There'll still be bad bosses, jobs that you want to get out of. But what's, what's important as a Christian, Jesus makes even our flawed work good. Not necessarily fun or easy or always satisfying. But God uses whatever work you do. Wherever you do it, for good as you serve the people around you. He uses it as an opportunity to serve your family, your community, your friends, your co-workers, your clients. See, Jesus redeems the pain for good. Jesus gives meaning to the things that you feel like are meaningless. And Jesus satisfies you in ways that your work never could. And in that, he gives to you an assignment to go about your work, not defined by your work, but defined by him, and do it to love the people around you. In the 1700s in Ireland, there was what was known as the gin craze. No, in Ireland, the gin craze, what that meant is, is that the, the rate of consumption of gin and whiskey at that time were astronomically high. 
And so during this time, this happened in part, water at that time was actually considered unsafe. Because of the microorganisms in water, because of bacteria, water was not actually a safe, safe choice for, for drinking for, for most people. And so um, gin and whiskey actually became the beverage of choice for most people during that time. Now during that time also, though, Parliament forbid the importing of liquor. And so what would happen then is in Ireland, if you were to walk through the streets, you could count every six houses. And one out of six houses were distilling their own gin. These were called the gin houses. Now, now if you think about that, one in every six houses in your neighborhood being distilleries, where you can imagine how that affects a community. And so in Ireland in the 1700s, there was excessive drunkenness. And because of the drunkenness, there was a high rate of poverty and a high rate of crime. But during that time, there was a man by the name of Arthur Guinness. Now, Arthur Guinness was a Christian man. He, he understood that he was a friend of God, he was, that he was rescued by the blood of Jesus. And this Christian man also be- believed that he was called by God. And he believed that he was called to make a drink that men will drink that will be good for them. And so Arthur Guinness decided to do just that, to produce a drink that men would drink that would be good for them in order to combat the alcoholism, the poverty, and the crime in Ireland. And so Arthur Guinness created a drink that you can still get in bars today, that the, the, the beautiful dark stout, right? That beer with the perfect foam head that has to be poured exactly just right. Arthur Guinness created that beer in order to combat alcoholism, crime, and poverty because he believed that God actually called him to do so. Now, you might be wondering, all right, how do you combat alcoholism with beer? Now, now this, is, this, this is fascinating. Think about this story. Because what he did is he understood that his beer had a significantly lower alcohol percentage th- than gin and whiskey. And so if somebody drank his beer instead of gin and whiskey, it had far, far less alcohol. And when somebody drinks a Guinness, he also understood that he created it in such a way that you would actually feel full before you drank too much. And not only that, it was also believed that, that a Guinness a day was actually good for you. In, in Ireland, Guinness is actually the only beer allowed in the hospitals because of the health benefits. All right, and now, now, now this is, so this is, so what Arthur Guinness, he was called by God, made an incredible beer, and by doing so, the alcoholism in Ireland went down. The rates of crime went down. The poverty went down. And then he created this organization that employed people, gave benefits to people that they had not had before. All because he believed he was called by God to love the people in his community. Now why do I share this story? Yes, because I love Guinness, but but also because, because it is a very unspiritual kind of calling. Right? He's not an evangelist. He's not going door to door, passing out tracts, trying to convince people that they need to follow Jesus. He's not making a Christian beer, whatever that were. He simply saw a need in his community and believed that he could f- help fix that problem by making a good beer. Or the way he loved the people was by doing the work that he could do and no one else could. What is the work that God has assigned you to? Whatever that work is, he's given it to you so that you can love the people around you. So I want you to think about the work you will go to. 
Right? When Monday morning comes, the work that gets you up in the morning. When the alarm goes off on Monday morning, what does that mean to you? Right? When you hear that sound, do you experience dread? Do you experience excitement? Do you experience angst? Or do you experience joy? What, what does that sound produce in you? Are you weary because of what, that gonna, what that's going to mean in your household? Are you excited because you love your job, but perhaps you love it too much? Right? What does that sound mean to you? Maybe, just maybe, what if when you heard that sound, it was a reminder of two things. That you are chosen by God and appointed by God. What if it was a reminder that you are a friend of God and that God has given to you work to do to love the people in your life? See, as a parent, as an engineer or graphic designer, as a barista or construction worker, as a teacher or police officer, and whatever you do, Colossians will tell us, do it as unto the Lord. And what do we know about that Lord? He does not call us servants. He calls us his friends. Jesus doesn't call you by your title, by your accolades, by your success. He calls you his friend. That's who you are. And he's given to you work. And he's appointed you to that good but flawed work. Whether it's frustrating or exciting, exhausting or life-giving, Jesus makes that work good. Not defining, but good. Because it's in that work that you serve the people in your life. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for our work. And we thank you that in this sinful, broken world with flawed work, with bad days and bad bosses, with, with exciting jobs and frustrating jobs, that you give us work and that work is good. And for, for those of us who, who use our work to, to, to give, try to get for ourselves what work is not meant to give us, for those of us who use our work to define ourselves, to be our identity, we ask you to give us an identity that's not rooted in our work, but it's rooted in yours. And for those of us who experience the thorns and thistles of work, the frustration, the exhaustion, the pain, remind us that you redeem the pain for good. That where it feels like there's no fruit, that you're producing fruit. That you give meaning to what is meaningless. That you set us free from the work that masters us. And you call us your friend. Amen.